Welcome back to the Center in the City podcast. I am so glad you are here. My name is Wade Brill, and in today's episode, I get to interview Stephen Sokoler of Journey. We recorded this podcast over the summer, and I wanted to wait and release it until I was doing this series of Mental Health Awareness Month that specifically is focusing on our mental health as individuals, as well as CEOs, and just being in the workplace and being a leader in our lives. A little bit about Stephen is he is a born and raised New Yorker. You know, I love that. I love meeting fellow born and raised New Yorkers. And Stephen is the founder and CEO of Journey, which is the leading preventative mental health solution for modern companies. Journey has the mission to help all people live happier, healthier, less stressed lives. I'll put Stephen's full bio in the show notes and a way to contact him. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to share an opportunity that's coming up this winter. I'll be co-facilitating a course, an all-day intensive course called the Compassionate Leader, Skills That AI Can't Replace, which is part of the Anderson Executive Continuing Education Program, which is connected to Regis University. It's going to be online and a full day of heightening our awareness as leaders of how we can be and strengthen this compassionate skill that's alive in all of us. Compassionate to self so that we can manage our stress and burnout more effectively. Compassionate so that we can manage our people and inspire our teams and create more connection and collaboration and psychological safety. So if you are interested in learning more about this course, head on over to the link in the show notes. Now let's get ready to settle in and let's get centered. Stephen, welcome to the Center and State podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Share with us one of your favorite practices that you anchor into to help you find center whenever you need it. Well, my daily practice is meditation. Uh, that's changed my life in, in more ways than I can uh, state, although I'm happy to, to get into more detail about that. So that's my daily morning practice. Uh, the one thing I will say that I do, that is that all of us do, but uh, is really something that I, I, I prioritize is sleep. I have found, especially as I've gotten older, that if I do not get a good night's sleep, I am not grounded. I am not centered. I'm not as compassionate as I'd like to be. I'm not as patient. And that's whether with myself or my wife or my colleagues. And so that's one that's like sort of obvious and yet at the same time is accessible to a lot of us. And I think we oftentimes overlook it. Mm. I appreciate you bringing that up because I have recently been getting back into napping. I never was a napper. My husband's a really good napper. And even just taking that time to lay down, I can feel such a different regulated shift that's happening. I mean, some people have a lot of trouble with sleep at mm -hmm. night, and that's a whole other topic around sleep hygiene. I'm curious if you can share with us your meditation practice. Like, what does that look like, and how did you craft that? Sure. So I started out about a decade and change ago. Uh, I stumbled upon a book on Buddhism. It really spoke to me. 
meditation was part of that. And I've continued to go deeper. And actually, when I started Journey, which was which was eight years ago, I was concerned that running a company that was focused on mental health would take away some of the joy that I experienced through meditation. And I actually found it was like the complete opposite, like the conversations that I would have, the friendships that I would make, the teachers that I would meet and study with and become mentors and friends. Uh, it just unlocked a whole a whole new world, very Aladdin style. It unlocked this whole new world for me. And it was, it was incredible. So my practice today is uh, I have a morning meditation. I'll sit for as long as I choose. Today was about 45 minutes. Sometimes it's 15 minutes. I'm not super rigid with it. I'd say on average, it's about a half hour. Although I'm definitely motivated and inspired to do longer. I happen to be in a period where there's quite a lot happening at work. So after like 30, 40 minutes, I start, my mind starts getting a little restless and is like, okay, let's get to it. Um, but it's a mindfulness practice right now, uh, breath focused. On Sundays, I do a loving kindness practice where, you know, send good vibes and, you know, certain wishes to myself and a loved one and a neutral party and someone more challenging and then, and then all beings. I miss going on retreat. I haven't done that since the pandemic function of just my my life now um planned several weddings during the pandemic got married actually twice once my wife and I and then a much larger wedding with friends and family and so um just a lot where life hasn't presented the opportunity to get away but I really love doing a deep dive for a couple days or a week or 10 days um I tell my my wife that you know I'd like to go on retreat for thirty days. Uh, that's I don't think happening uh, anytime soon. But um, yeah, on a day to day basis, a morning practice, and then we'll call in um, whether it's taking just one breath or a few breaths throughout the day. If I find myself off balance or or uncentered, uh, but it's the morning practice that really sets the tone for me. If you skip a morning, do you notice any shift? For yourself? It's an interesting question. Um, sometimes, but the truth is, I've committed to this practice for so long that it's much more ingrained in who I am and how I move through the world. Um, that said, like I was just, I just got back from vacation. And on that vacation, I was up much later than I normally am. I was jet lagged, so I'd wake up at all types of times. I wasn't eating the way I normally do. And so when I'd wake up, I wouldn't feel very good. And then my practice was off. I wasn't really practicing, or if I was, it was only for a few minutes. Um, and that's when I feel it. But like, if tomorrow morning I was to wake up and my wife and I were like, let's go take a walk, and then I didn't get to it, I wouldn't feel it as much. It's more if it's several days in a row. Hmm. And how do you feel having a morning meditation practice supports you being a CEO? Well, I touched on some of it. I mean, I think being it really in, in any role nowadays, but, but certainly as a CEO, so much of my work is interacting with other people, whether that's my colleagues, whether that's uh, teachers, whether that's people we are interviewing and hiring or clients. And I need to show up as the best version of me. I need to be balanced and equanimous and compassionate and thoughtful. And it's really hard for me to do that if I don't have the practice of 
calming my mind, looking inward, being able to notice when I'm off in some way, you know, that self-awareness that comes with meditation. So uh, for me, it's, it's helped me immensely. In fact, one of the things that I will say to people is, so I, I used to be heavy. I lost 85 pounds and this was, this has nothing to do with meditation, just to be clear. Um, this was, this predates my practice. But the difference for me from being heavy from a lot of my life and now being skinny versus not meditating and meditating, the difference is more significant with the meditation practice than it is, you know, losing 85 pounds, which is quite, quite a lot. So that's how impactful it's, it's been for me. Can you tell us more about that? Like, what do you mean by impactful? Sure. So my favorite definition of meditation is the the tibetan word gom g-o-m uh which means to become familiar with and so for me you know people often think ah, oh, meditation is about calming you down like ah like calm you know calm the app like calm 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 is great there's nothing wrong with being calm it's actually probably helpful for most people a lot of times but for me meditation was about waking up and getting more familiar and so specifically it was like getting more familiar with my priorities and my values. Where was I living in a way that was just out of line with my values? And I was totally unaware of it, right? And so the idea of awakening to that, being able to notice the self-talk in my head of where I wasn't being kind to myself, where I was being too hard on myself, just really noticing, you know, like, I think, I don't want to say I was like sleepwalking through life because that's like way overstating it. Like my life was, I was very fortunate to have quite a nice life beforehand, but meditation really helped me to awaken to things. Even uh, there would be times when I'd be walking down the block and when I was first starting my practice and I was like, was this always here? Like this set of flowers or this tree or this piece of art? And I was like, probably always has been. And I just, you know, walk past it every time without really being aware. So that sense of presence, uh, but really it helped me a lot with the with the internal game, if you will. So having this heightened level of awareness that you've gained through your meditation practice, which I think a lot of us can relate to, I can as well. When you're being a leader, when you're, you know, working and thinking about the future and also having to manage all the running pieces in the present moment, how do you practice awareness without getting caught by the awareness if if that is clear like being so aware that you kind of become hyper vigilant that you're aware and then maybe even second guessing your awareness or getting caught in the stories around the awareness tell me more about your experience with that well yeah like what i'm curious about is like sometimes i notice within my practice there's this level of awareness that i'm I'm so aware of what's happening internally and externally that sometimes I can get swept away by the internal experience. And then I feel disconnected from what's happening in the present moment from being in the, being in the room. Right. So for instance, let's think of an example of facilitating a workshop and noticing, Oh, like, some energies moving through my body and then notice like, oh, I'm, you know, scanning this virtual room and seeing how people are responding to this exercise. And then I'm kind of deciding, oh, do I want to shift what 
I'm going to facilitate next than what I had kind of scripted and planned. And so navigating that and then navigating the internal, curious as a leader, the more you have awareness and the more input you're managing, how you stay clear with it all and not let it rock you or take you out of the present. Yeah, I mean, that's clear. Yeah, I I would love to say that doesn't happen, but it definitely does. You know, um, I am certainly emotional. I'm passionate about what we're doing, what we're building. And so there's definitely times, you know, we're talking in the work context here, obviously, when I'm not as present as I'd like to be, when I'm either distracted because I just came from a meeting and now I'm in a different meeting, but I'm still thinking about that one or I'm preparing for the next one or you know, I get a a Slack pop up and then all of a sudden I'm triggered about something, but I'm still here with you, but really my mind is elsewhere. So, you know, I think the thing that I've learned and I touched on this a little bit, but to really just let it be fine, like to just not be hard on myself around any of these things is actually quite helpful. I was, I went to a, um, an event last night with a community called Reality that I've done a lot of of work with. They do these multicultural trips to Israel where they bring activists and influencers and artists and business folks across different communities and hadn't seen a a lot of these folks since before the pandemic. And we were just reflecting on life because a lot of us are older and at a different life stage than we were, you know, five plus years ago. And so one of the things I said is like, my advice to my younger self is always like, care less. Like I wish when I was, I mean, forget even as a teenager, but even in my twenties and thirties, like if I could just care a little bit less, that would be very helpful for me personally. And so when it comes to this, like I'm going to have all types of experiences in terms of my level of presence, my level of awareness, I'm going to get swept away in some emotion and it's going to feel amazing, or it's going to be, there's going to be a ton of suffering and I'm going to be feeling it and trying to like be aware of the suffering, like why, what's happening there, be curious around it. But I think for me, it's really just a lot around acceptance. Acceptance I'm hearing and, and just the, like the acknowledging of what is and being able to just say, okay, it's right. It's here. It's like this and not having to make a story about it of, does this make you a bad leader, a good leader, a distracted leader, like having to label it. Yeah. I think like in the moment it just is. And then I have, um, work with my coach. So I was, I was kind of. It's funny to say, like I was thinking about all of the human beings that surround me, that help me. It's like, uh, it's like assisted living. Like I have a coach, I have a therapist. My wife and I have a, a couples therapist, which I think is amazing, by the way. I think everyone should do that. Like it's, it's fantastic. Um, I have a CEO group. Uh, I have my meditation practice. So it's like so many things to support just one little human being. And so I take time to reflect not necessarily in the moment where I'm ruminating on what have you, but there's times when I step back to say, how am I doing? How present am I, am I being, how sustainable am I? Am I doing the things that are particular to me? For example, celebrating the wins. Something that I've been working on is, you know, as we're growing and we're pushing and we want to do more and we want to do better, how do I still take the time to celebrate the wins and celebrate the victories and let everyone know how proud I am of them And, and even myself. Right. So I find that in the moment, I'm not particularly hard on myself. I'm just having the experience. And then there is an opportunity to step back and reflect on it and say, okay, from a more macro place, 
Where am I doing well? Where do I need to improve? Where do I want to deepen my practice, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it does take a village, like, right? We all need our group of people to keep us going in life. Talk to us about how and why you started Journey. Like, what was the need that you saw in the space? Meditation changed my life. I was very fortunate to have stumbled upon it while living in Australia by myself, uh, you know, had the space physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, it was also serendipitous. I stumbled upon a book that really spoke to me. So there were a lot of things that had to align in order for me to find meditation. And that was sort of the, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a gateway drug, but the, the opening to then so many other things that continue to uh, accelerate uh, my growth and learning and, and spiritual development. And so I thought, well, there's got to be another way. Like my mom's a school teacher. She's in Queens where I grew up. She's you know taught for 30 years. Like she's not going to pick up the book on Buddhism at Barnes and Noble. My brother, whom I'm seeing right after this, works in finance. So he might not you know gravitate towards that, although he is actually quite interested in, in, in a lot of this stuff now. Um, but what are ways to make meditation? And again, we've, we've evolved to have other practices, cognitive behavioral therapy and journaling and breath work and hypnotherapy. But at the time it was meditation, eight, almost nine years ago. How do we make it simple and approachable and secular, right? There's so many amazing places if you want to go down the Buddhist route, which is something I'm, I'm personally very passionate about. There's ways if you want to go down the clinical route to understand you know, how it changes the brain and all neuroplasticity and all that. But what's the way that just an everyday person is going to say, hey, you know what? This is for me. And I understand this. And there's no stigma. And it's not rooted in religion or spirituality. It's just a simple practice, the same way exercise is. You don't have to believe anything, right? You don't have to believe that exercise is working. It just works. Same with meditation. How do we make it easy for people? So I thought, that was an opportunity. And I also really liked the business part of it. So having built businesses before, I thought there was an opportunity to both help a lot of people, which I recognized was really important to me and build a big business. So both head and heart were aligned in this. And so Journey is serving employee wellness, right? Offering these resources on demand and these holistic resources. Why is it important not only for employee wellness to be being discussed in these days, but CEO leadership wellness to be emphasized. Yeah. So we work with a really wide range of companies. We work with Walgreens and their 250,000 employees. And most of those employees are working in retail, right? They're not sitting in corporate. They're not executives. They're working in, in stores, um, stocking shelves and as pharmacists and checking people out, right? We work with places like the Harlem Children's Zone, which is a charter school in Harlem. We work with the Anti-Defamation League, so a really wide range. And for us, the reason why we went through organizations was because we knew that they have the attention of their employees, and they sometimes have the budget to be able to support initiatives like this. And so whether it's I'm the CEO, or I'm an executive, or I'm a manager, or this is my first job out of school. Or, you know, um, how do we make mental health accessible and approachable for individuals? And so it just so happened that the organization was the place to do that. 
And so we help them at work. Why? Many of us spend the vast majority of our waking hours at work, but we also help people at home, right? How do you think about the whole human being? Because what happens at work shows up at home, what happens at home shows up at work. And that was even before the pandemic where many of us are working from home. So it's really just all blended together. And so um, I think whether you're you're an executive, oftentimes executive executives have more what we would call like conventional work stress, but they also have means, right? So they might have a budget to be able to do things. So they might have more flexibility. And so we think about all of the different employees and ways to meet them where they are, whether it's your first job, whether you're a janitor, whether you work in manufacturing, whether you're a teacher, or whether you're an executive and find things that will speak to you. What do you think are some common barriers that are preventing people from getting started in a mindfulness practice or even just prioritizing their mental health? I know for me, and I'm in this industry and just sharing, like calling this out, it was years ago, but I, it took me a while to say, wow, I, I have anxiety and to recognize that anxiety is a mental health crisis. For a while, it felt like I couldn't say that and I couldn't own that. And ever since I've been able to say, experience a lot of anxiety, it has empowered me to think about ways that I can take ownership of that anxiety and, and be proactive to managing it. So I'm curious, like, what are some of the barriers that you hear or notice within the communities that you serve? Well, there's certainly a stigma. So um, whether it's mental health more broadly or very specific things like anxiety or depression, right? Like nobody wants to, or many people don't want to have that label put on them or put that label on themselves. Um, so there's a, there's a big stigma around it, especially for men. Um, it's something where, you know, we're taught in this culture to be strong and, you know, fight through it and blah, blah, blah. And so there's often an issue there. Uh, it's not limited to men, just to be, to be clear. It's something where people might even desire to do it, but don't know where to start. There's a shortage of therapists in this country. And so that's really challenging. There's also a significant shortage of therapists of color or members of the LGBTQ plus community. And so when people who have historically been marginalized or underserved, then actually do reach out for care, they might not be able to find care with somebody who has a similar lived experience. So that's a challenge. Um, in the way that we serve at companies, there's also the question of, uh, do I trust my company? So everything that we do, and this is true for almost every company. In fact, I might say every company, but I'll, I'll just say almost every, it's totally confidential. So nothing that you're doing, whether it's on the subclinical side with meditation, whether it's on the therapy side is shared with the employer, but a lot of people, and rightfully so, don't trust their employers. And so that's another thing. Oh, I have all these great resources, but I don't trust my company. One of the biggest things that we see in particular when serving companies is employees have access to so many different tools and they're not aware of any of them. So um, companies continue to offer all different types of benefits, fertility benefits and family planning and meditation and mindfulness and therapy. And they don't really have the resources or bandwidth to get mind share from the employees so that employees even know where to turn. So it might be, oh, I'm struggling, I'm so stressed out, I'm about to burn out, right? You hear that very much in, in today's society. 
but it's not, I'm about to burn out. Oh, I have this resource available to me with great therapists or I have, there, there isn't a connection there. Um, so I think that's, those are some of the many challenges that individuals and we as a society are facing nowadays. And where do you feel like the individual, like obviously corporate could probably do a better job at communicating and advertising to their employees and sharing the benefit packages and also just creating cultures of psychological safety, right? Which I think is a huge piece of just where all of this suffering could get a little softer. I'm curious, would you feel like the individual, how they can take personal responsibility for their well-being and mental health? I'm generally very sympathetic to or empathetic to the lives that people are living and how challenging that is. Whether that's you're working a lot or you're working several jobs, you're not making enough money to deal with, you know, rising healthcare costs and inflation. You're a parent and you have to support, you know, one or two or three children. You have a healthy or unhealthy relationship with your family. That's obviously challenging, right? There's social issues going on now, um, political unrest and challenges just in this country. There's just a lot happening. And so it's kind of hard for me to ask people to take on another thing. And that's part of the reason we do the work that we do is how do we make it really easy? How do we just nudge people? How do we give people, everything we do, by the way, we didn't talk about this, is around proactive mental health. What does it mean? It means not waiting until there's an issue and it's really severe and now I'm going to get help. It's how do we incorporate it into the day-to-day lives of the people and communities that we serve? And so, you know, I'd love to tell everyone, here's the recipe. And I can tell you what I do, right? Get a good night's sleep, move my body every day. So usually it's going to the gym, but it could be taking a walk with my wife, et cetera, eating healthy food. But these are, and, and meditation, those are my four, but each one of these has its own set of challenges. Maybe you live in a food desert and you know all you have is fast food around you. Uh, maybe meditation is something that's not for you because of X, Y, or Z reason, right? You don't have the time. Or maybe you can't get a good night's sleep because you live in an environment that's noisy or you have young kids or et cetera. So you know, I would love to be able to tell everyone, hey, this is, I do think societally we do a huge disservice to individuals, to all of us, by not teaching these things in school. Like, I went to a very good public school in Queens. I mean, granted, this was, you know, a decent amount of time ago at this point, right? The 80s and 90s. Um, But it was much more about like, these are the planets, these are the dinosaurs, this is this, which is great, it's important to know. But it wasn't, this is how you notice when you're feeling a certain way. This is how you deal with these feelings. This is how, uh, you know, things around empathy and bias and, and stuff like that. So I think there's better ways. And, and I'm sure that schools nowadays do look very different than they did back then, but ways for us to learn these tools early on so we can incorporate them into who we are and into our day-to-day existence versus it's something you have to learn later on in life and try to like cram in when you don't have any time. And at the end of the day, all you want to do is like play on TikTok or sit in front of the TV and watch Netflix, right? Like, so I don't know if that answers your question exactly. I kind of like was riffing on that, but that's that's what came up. 
Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned these nudges, which I think is really important because yeah, you can't force people to have these like huge life shifts. And in my experience, it's usually we wait until something, some big rupture happens to wake us up, to say something needs to shift. And I love the mission and intention with Journey to make proactive mental health care a priority because yeah, like how can we add more preventative wellness to our world? And yet I notice it's really hard to see people taking proactive steps because there's typically this belief that we're invincible until we realize we're not. <laughs> and then we're like, oh shit, I need some tools in my tool bag that I didn't even know I needed to have. So yes to education, early education, even just being able to know the variety of emotions that we can have and be able to label that, what big skill that would be for us as kids and as adults. Yeah. So if somebody said to me, you know, what should I do? I would outline some of the things that have really helped me, right? I, I mentioned some of them, getting a good night's sleep, having a daily meditation practice, eating healthy food, uh, exercising. Those are things that I think they're pretty there's a word that's escaping me at the moment. I'll blame it on it's a Friday afternoon, but like, it's hard to argue with any of those, right? Like I, I think over the history of humanity, you can say those are good, solid foundational practices. Now, how do you get it to stick, right? So there's a lot of research on behavior change and habit formation. When I lost 85 pounds, people would always say to me, what was the diet? As in, what did you eat? Like, oh, I just ate watermelon all day. Oh, I had cabbage soup. It had nothing to do with the diet. It was all about the accountability and support that came with community. Why? Because it's hard to do things on your own. It's hard to change behavior. It's hard to build new habits, right? But having a group of people that held me accountable, that encouraged me, that you know, kept me going, that made a big difference. So when it comes to any of these things, we live very individual individualistic lives nowadays. We're not living in tribes, in villages. We're living in our apartment by ourselves, And maybe we have a friend who lives across town and maybe, you know, like how can we have that support whether in real life or digitally, you know? I mean, digital is great for a lot of reasons. Obviously it has its set of challenges, but how do we find like-minded people, whether it's, I wanna start a meditation practice. I want to start um, going to the gym more often. I want to get sober or reduce the amount of alcohol that I have. You know, there's a, there's a wide range of things. But I think for me personally, I found the power of community to be one that really allows these things to take hold and stick in a, a, a much more um, consistent and lasting way. Yes, community is huge. Can't do anything alone. And that circles back to what you shared in the beginning. You have your your coach, your therapist, your couples counselor, your doctors, your, you know, we all have our people and we need our people. Yeah. Like my heart, you know, part of my wake up call was getting diagnosed with cancer. I mean, I was somebody who ate pretty healthily. I was somebody who moved my body a lot, but for me, I realized I needed more resiliency skill set and tools to manage my anxiety. And that's really where I doubled down in my meditation practice. And how I wish that I had even more exposure to my practice ahead of time so that it even 
was more easily accessible when my shitstorm came. And yet we don't have our like emergency tool bags packed. When the pandemic happened, everybody was like running to the store for toilet paper and then it was out. And not to say we need a hoard toilet paper so that we're always prepared if it runs out of the store, but that kind of balance of like, how are we making sure that we do have the toolkits so that when the shitstorms come, because they will come, whether they're big or small or in between, and it's like, how do we face them with some real skills and know that we're also not alone in facing them? Yeah, one of the biggest challenges that I see, and this is something that I, I heard when I was teaching meditation quite a lot back in the day, I don't really teach as much anymore, but um, people would say, oh, I'm so stressed, I need to start meditating. Great, okay, great. I mean, better now than, than never, but also it's to your question about missing a day. You do it to be prepared when those times come. Like we all know, you know, we plan and God laughs, right? And we think life's going to be a certain way. And then it smacks us in the face with something else, whether with our personal life, whether with the external world, how can we prepare proactively for those times? Because we know that they will come. And so having a good meditation practice or journaling practice or being in community, it could be you go to church or a temple or what have you, um, those can be the, the anchors that can get you through those hard times, whether at work or, or in life. And I think um, we've moved away from a lot of that stuff as part of the fabric of, you know, how we live, right? Um, organized religion is down here in the States and that's okay if it's being replaced with something else. Um, but that, that sense of belonging and purpose and um, yeah, I think, I think there's a gap in a lot of, in a lot of people's lives that could be filled. So that's your point. When those things happen, we are prepared. We are able to deal with it. And we're not just leaning on our TikTok, Instagram communities for, for that support and not to say it's bad, but you know, that there's, we need some extra cushion for the times that, that really rock us some things that keep us really grounded. Thank you, Stephen, so much for being here and sharing your insights and wisdom with us. Where can people learn more about you and journey and stay connected? I think I'm like really not on social media very much, but um, our website is journey.live. I am on LinkedIn at Stephen Sokoler. I'm sure you'll have it spelled out somewhere. Um, I know I have an Instagram, but I am not, I don't check it. So Please, if you want to email me, I'm at steven at journey.live. But yeah, I think actually the, the website has a lot of great resources, tools and tips and practices and ways to engage, whether it's for you or if you have a child or a teenager or um, how to support others. So um, check out the website, hit me up. Wait, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for listening to the Centered in the City podcast. I welcome you to think about what's one tiny doable, and I mean doable, action step that you can take this week, this month, as we celebrate and honor Mental Health Awareness Month. Think about what's one thing you can do to support yourself proactively making your mental health care a priority. Maybe that's scheduling a walk and really claiming that time on your calendar. 
Maybe it's planning a friend night because your heart and soul needs some laughter. Maybe it's giving yourself permission to do one less thing this week or take one project off of your plate. Maybe it's send an email that has been nagging you and on your mind and maybe draining some of your energy and attention, like really just prioritizing sending that one email. Maybe you're inspired to join the Center in the City community and want to try out or seven-day free trial and check out the meditations or the Pilates movement flows. Whatever idea comes to your mind and heart in this moment, trust it, prioritize it, share it with somebody, celebrate that you are going to do this tiny doable action and really make sure to celebrate it. Acknowledge yourself for showing up and Notice, how does that feel? How does that feel to proactively do something to take care of your mental health, your well-being? And celebrate with me. I'd love to celebrate with you. Feel free to share a voice note with me on centerinthecity.com or direct message me on Instagram at OneWade or on LinkedIn at Wade Brill. Thank you so much for being here. Until next time, stay centered.